What about this internet? This is episode 25 of the Rebel Matters podcast and this week's episode is a chat with local historian Kira McCarthy that was recorded in Cork City Hall. So if you're interested in Cork living here or want to learn more about the city, this is going to be a cracker episode for you to listen to. But there have been a lot of things going on in the last week or two which I want to talk about a little bit first before we get stuck into the episode with Kieran. First of all, there is an unbelievable new thing after starting in Cork called Neighbour Food. It is run by my very good friend Jack Crotty, also known as the Rocket Man, who has got a class food place on Princess Street in Cork City Centre. Neighbour Food, it's basically a thing where there's a website, neighbourfood.ie. You go there, loads of farmers and producers have signed up to the website and you can basically buy their stuff on the website and then between 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock there is a collection point on Barrack Street right behind Osho the bar where you can just go and pick your stuff up so it's basically an online farmer's market and you can go and pick the stuff up and it's already in a box for you on Tuesday I've done it the last three weeks and it's been class I haven't actually gone to a shop in a shopping centre since just because of the quality of his food is so good I guess there's kind of a perception that the stuff is going to be really expensive but it's actually the O'Mahony's butchers there from the English market their meat is a cracker quality meat and it's the same price as you would buy it in the shop anyway same with a lot of other producers there's the yum gelato which is even hard to get anywhere else you can get it in the shop up in st luke's you can get it in um bradley's on north main street but you can order it and there's special flavors and stuff you can order online through the neighborhood website there is the organic republic for the veg boxes there's milk cheese everything you think of basically is there and available soma coffee shop have got uh, or signed up to the neighbor food website as well so check it out and if you're interested in getting on board then all you have to do is order your food on neighborfood.ie and then be available yourself or get someone to go and pick it up between five and seven on tuesday in behind osho on barrack street and something else that happened recently is actually picked up a national inclusion award from the organization cara and I guess this is kind of in recognition of the work that we've been doing over the last number of years to open up the doors for people with disabilities and provide a service that kind of is provided to everyone on an equal footing, no matter where someone's starting off at. So it was kind of a good tap on the back for us and a good boost of motivation and nice bit of recognition for the work that we've done because we do work really hard to make our service available for everybody. Uh, put together a bit of a blog post about the Inclusion Award, but more so specifically about three people in particular who had a very imp- big impact on me on my life. My dad, Alan Deneen and Eddie Hennessy. You should go and check that out because it was very popular on Facebook when I put it up there, first of all. So we've transferred that blog over onto the Ackley website, ackley.ie, and go and have a look at that there and see, get a bit of a perspective on the effect that the people who, the, the people who with disabilities have had in my life, but also the value that we might not see all the time because we're kind of caught up in preconceptions about people with disabilities and how they can be overcome. So check that out on the Ackley website. After the Inclusion Award, I was up in Belfast for a while and I did an interview with Owen O'Neill in Radio Falls' brand new studios on the Falls Road. And funnily, I can remember Radio Falls way back when it started about 30 years ago. Um, Well, I can remember it about 25 years ago or 20 years ago, I'd say, when my dad was kind of putting the studio up here and there and it was a pirate radio station it was getting shut down opened up in, in a new place and and recently then they've, they've got the funding and they're after opening up this brand new studio on the Falls Road which is a far cry from where it started from and it's great to see that community development going on but I did the, the interview with Owen and Yale Tasha Askielga so if you want to practice your couple of fuckle go and check that out I'll put the link to that in the show notes here and just this week I had 
a feature in the Evening Echo about the steroid use in young males in particular. Kind of been a topical subject and a few people have got in touch with me over the last few months to talk about it. Uh, it's quite a big feature that was in there and it's a, it is a big problem. I think so, uh, without talking about it too much here, just go and check it out. I'll put the link to that in the, in the show notes as well. The Evening Echo article on steroid use. So if you're interested in that, check it out. But the biggest thing that we have going on at the minute is in Ackley is a project that we launched this week. So as some of you will know, I was I was in Palestine twice this year. In March, I ran the Palestine Half Marathon. And when I was there, I visited a lot of group in groups in the West Bank, volunteer groups and community groups and individuals as well. One of the places that I visited was the Laji Centre, which is a community a volunteer-based community centre that supports the Ada Refugee Camp, which holds 5,500 5, Palestinians. The camp is surrounded by the Israeli army. I think there's six or seven checkpoints all around the army. It's known as the most, all around the, sorry, there's six or seven watchtowers all around the camp and the camp is completely walled in. It's known as the most tear-gassed place in the world and the Israeli army are known for bringing their troop, their new recruits there to train them on how to use the new weapons, the, the tear gas um, launchers. And also they've got this stuff called skunk water, which is absolutely disgusting. They come up with sort of like a water cannon, but they drive up to the side of a house and they spray this skunk water, this like some sort of some sort of organic material on houses. And apparently it can take months for the smell to go away, that it's absolutely disgusting. The conditions in the camp are very cramped. There's a huge problem with diabetes, blood pressure and also mental health problems due to the fact that they're under constant watch and under sort of constant threat from the Israeli army. There's no real health facilities in the camp, although the Laji Centre have started a community based health workers program recently. But they have, and they've got a five-a-side court, but because of these big problems, I was speaking to one of the founders of the Laji Centre, Salah, when I was over there for the second time in August, and I suggested that a gym would be a really good idea for the camp, but he obviously said that they didn't have the funding for the project and they didn't really know how they could go about setting it up. So being in the line of work that we're at in Acti, I said to him that we could help them out with that, that we could help them raise the money and set up a gym. So for our small team in Cork and Ackley, this is a massive project. We're going to try and open a gym. Well, we're not going to try and do it. We are going to do it. Um, and we're going to do everything we can to make it happen. We're going to open a gym in the Laji Centre, which is in the Ada Refugee Camp, the most tear gas place in the world. So and essentially what we're doing is trying to open a gym for the betterment of the community there that's going to be run on a volunteer basis in essentially what, what's probably one of the most difficult places to open a gym on the face of the earth. Um, after the gym jam last year, which we used to raise funds for the wheelchair, Irish wheelchair rugby team who were going to the World Championships in Sydney, we kind of have a bit of wind in our sails. We raised a good bit of money for that and we've seen what we can do when the community in Cork pull together and when we put all our put our shoulders to the wheel. So we're confident that we're going to be able to do this. Um, we're going to have to raise about 15 grand to get the gym in, to train people up from the camp so that they can run the gym as well. And hopefully it's going to be something that's going to be there for the long term and going to work towards helping people be fitter and healthier. So the first part of this project is a pop-up shop selling Palestinian goods that we're going to hold at Ackley on the 16th of December between 11 o'clock in the morning and 6 o'clock in the evening. So we're we're after, we're after getting a load of stuff from the West Bank, all handmade goods, mostly from suppliers that I met myself in August while I was out there. We've got uh, wine glasses and ceramics from the ceram ceramics factory in Hebron. 
uh, the loads of kefis, the traditional Palestinian scarves that, that are made in the textiles factory in Hebron. We've got handmade embroidery from women in the Aida refugee camp. We've got t-shirts, Palestinian shirts, handmade soap, olive oil and stuff like that. So it's going to be class. Come along that and help us support it, the, help support this project. It's, of, of course, when you come across to the pop-up shop, there's going to be loads of really high quality and very unique goods there which are going to be brilliant for Christmas presents. But if you're coming along, you're doing more than just getting Christmas presents. You're supporting us in this project and helping us to get this gym open over in the West Bank in 2019. So it's on the 16th of December, 11 o'clock to 6 o'clock. Come along and help us just turn this sort of dream into a reality. That is kind of a roundup of a lot of the news that I have for you from Ackley and from Cork at the minute. So I want to get stuck into this interview and this chat that I did with Kieran in the City Hall. Kieran is also a counsellor. He's got a cool website and kieranmccarthy.ie if you want to go and find out more about what he does and stuff. And I'll put the links, the link to that there and a couple of other things that he mentions in the podcast into the show notes so you can click straight into the links afterwards. So Sean Mojikarja, Kieran McCarthy, Bunsalt us. I think that the reason I wanted to do this um, podcast on Cork is to raise a bit of awareness about what's actually under our noses. So I'm not sure where we're going to start, but actually the first thing I wanted to ask you was like, what sparked your own interest in learning about history and heritage? Yeah, so I mean, I've I've been lucky in my life with the people that I've met and who've kind of put me on different kind of different paths. So when I was in uh, transition year in Clash de Creasery, I had uh, a history teacher and I had an English teacher and I had a farm master who were, I suppose, who gave me opportunities to do what I call project work. One of those projects was a local history project um, and one of those actually was for a thing called Lord Mayor's School's History Project, uh, which uh, the Lord Mayor at the time was a man called Michal Martin. And I entered that particular project and I really enjoyed doing that. Um, at the same time, um, my goal in life was to be a primary school teacher and so I actually took the local history element into the classroom on my job experience and transition year and I taught local history and there was great feedback from that the kids seemed to enjoy the program I seemed to enjoy it I was like yes primary school teaching but the thing is that as I went on and as I did my leaving cert I didn't get the points to do primary school teaching um, and so my I went down a kind of a, a different path I kept up the researching in local history um, and I and I became, I suppose, a historical consultant doing books and projects for, for various people who wanted work done. Um, I set up a, kind of a, a, a small walking tour company, a historical walking tours company, which I still actually have. So technically this year, um, I'm 25 years giving walking tours because I gave my first one at the age of 16. Um, so I love walking to the city. There's this huge kind of special feeling to it. I've never got bored in giving the same narrative in the 25 years. There's something about this city that I'm, I really love and really passionate. And I suppose in every city, there's going to be a local historian or several local historians that have that uh, topophilia, this kind of love of place and sense of place. Um, and then I, I did geography and archaeology from my BA degree in UCC and then I did a master's in philosophy MPhil in geography and my MPhil was on 18th century Cork um in the midst of all of that, I was asked to write a column for the Inside Cork newspaper in October 1999, and I find myself still writing that column, but the newspaper has changed in, to Cork Independence since then. So I find myself 19 years later with, whatever, 970 columns of the, all this kind of rich material, um, and it's, un, it's, an unpaid, it's unpaid work. I do the column because I love doing it every week, but you do have to put a put aside like hours of your time every week but it's for me it's a great kind of outreach tool and it's a great way to get people on walking tours in the last couple of years 
I've also expanded my walking tours into the suburbs of Cork. Um, so, I mean, I started off at one walking tour of city centre. Now I've got 22 different tours and kind of, of different kind of suburbs. So I kind of have a rough goal over the next couple of years that I'm going to have a walking tour in every suburb or every parish. Um, and and te- technically, over the space of six or seven nights, you could take a walking tour with me across the south side or jump from the south side to the north side. Um, so, I mean, at this moment in time, I have 11 walking tours through the southeast area of Cork City, like Banlock, Black Rock, the Marina, um, Douglas Village, the old workhouse. So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a generalist in terms of my knowledge of Cork history, but I, I do specialise in kind of one or two areas. Like my, my column in the newspaper that I have... Because it's going for 19 years, I've had to come up with content every week as well. Um, and I generally go by um, what I call team. So for the first five or six years, it was like uh, an A to Z, like of how Cork developed. So from the age of St. Finbar, the Vikings, the Anglo-Normans, to, to, through to the 20th century. But then I got to the 20th century and I was like, right, I need another theme. Uh, and so what I did from 2006 to 2012 was to go back to the start of the River Lee Valley. Um, and do a series, had a series in my head that it'd be 20 articles on the story of the river and all the sites along the River Lee. Um, but the thing is that those 20 uh, sites or those 20 things I had in my head ended up as 320 uh, sites. So it actually, so it took me six years to field work a 60 kilometer river valley. Um, and every Monday afternoon I'd go out and I'd do another little bit of field work. I did, I did it in terms of a west to east element. So when I finish one area, I'd go randomly on a Monday afternoon, knock on the next door and see what's there or go flag down the local postman or go into the local pub. Um, and, that, and, and that for me really kind of pushed the boat out. And it, it's amazing out of that, I, I suppose, developed frameworks and methodologies on how to, I suppose, get people talking and trying to listen to people. And then I ran for local council here. So I'm now I'm nine years local councillor. So everything I've done is, is all layered. It's probably quite random. It's very probably far away from being a primary school teacher. Um, <laughs> even though I do run, I did reboot um, the Lord Mayor's School's history project that I entered. Um, and I rebooted it uh, 13 years ago. And we, dis- we call it Discover Cork School's Heritage Project. Um, the Lord Mayor's office is involved every year, but not it, it's not stamped Lord Mayor. They would be at the awards ceremony, Cork City Council Fund, this project I actually have. So basically I have a, a thousand students and 20 schools involved. So a thousand students doing local history projects in the city every year. Uh, and again, it, it is that they have to do some sort of a booklet. We get them out on field work. We, we, they're, they're creative in terms of doing models and films. They're, they're doing colorful pages. They're approaching the city with kind of different lenses. So I'm a, I suppose I, my, my PhD that I ended up with was on collective memory and how people remember and how we commemorate things and the nature of runes and pilgrimage sites and my, my PhD ended up my thesis on the River Lee Valley um, so studying places like Gugan Barra the source of the River Lee, the Shehi Mountains and taking all that apart and seeing what's there so I'm trying to encourage people to come up with new ways of looking at their place, their sense of place, their sense of identity new ways of, of place making um, and that's somewhat that was a journey that I've gone on as well from just typical local historian to, well, if you want to remember something, you have to be careful of the following things. Um, and I think it, like Cork is full of stories. And it, I, I think 
I always think that a lot of those stories are undersold. Um, there, there are main narratives in Cork that if you're ever giving a walking tour or ever giving a lecture, like you have to hit upon. If you don't hit upon them, they're like, you see the hands going up going, well, you'd never mention that. But for me, I suppose, being on this journey for 25 years, I've seen all the diff- seen many elements of Cork. I mean, I, the series I have in the Cork Independent at the moment is looking at Cork 100 years ago. Which is, so we're back like in, in, in 1918, um, and I kind of say, well, my column says every week, this is what went on in Cork 100 years ago in this particular week. Um, cause for, so for me, when people look at 1918, they kind of think of the influenza, they think of the, the Westminster kind of elections that went on, and they, um, they think of the end of World War I, which are all very relevant things. But I always think as well, there was a life of the city kind of going on as well. So there was like people returning from the war to the different hospitals. The hospitals were kind of full up. There was different um, ambitions for the city. A um, hundred years ago, there was a, prod- there was a proposal to, to develop Tivoli as an industrial estate. And of course, that's what's there at the moment. But there's actually a plan that was launched there two weeks ago uh, to to decommission the industrial estate because the port of Cork is moving down the harbour to Ring Skiddy and to develop a whole new housing area. But the thing is, is that all those first proposals, in a sense, appeared 100 years ago. So you can learn, I mean, you can learn an awful lot from the past as well. What was the initial idea? What was the initial kind of ambition? History repeats itself in the city a lot. Um, and so I've, I've also a major fascination in Cork's role in the wider Atlantic in what I call Northwest Europe. Um, so you're dealing with this ancient kind of port city that had links like a thousand years ago to Scandinavia or 800 years ago, Anglo-Norman times to, uh, to France or Bristol. And I've visited all those cities and I've done the research and it's, it's, it's really interesting. It's a city that has experienced every phase of Irish urban development. Um, and so when you're giving a walking tour, the possibilities are endless around that, and you can have a lot of fun. I mean, I, I have Docklands, I have a Docklands tour, which is site specific to the Docklands. I love the whole idea of giving a walking tour in front of huge grain silos, and you're you're like a little mini object beneath it. Um, I've got a workhouse tour, and I love the whole idea that you can walk you can walk around the old workhouse, now St Finbar's uh, Hospital on Douglas Road, um, and tell that story of hardship. And I have a recent one on. Our Lady's Hospital, the former Cork Lunatic Asylum, which is even more hardship again. So I, but I also have what I call happy stories. Um, I've got one called The Curiosities of the Lock, the Lock and its Curiosities, um, which is all about just different things in that area where it's gallows green and hanging to market gardens, to nurseries, to the legend of the lock. So all these different things that operate the sense of place and identity in those areas as well. Um, so if I give a walking tour, uh, for me to give a walking tour of a suburb I probably have nine or ten sites and the thing is you have to research those nine or ten sites like you, you, you can't just give a walking tour and just mention one thing and then that's it uh, a lot of my walking tours that people have gone on they'll notice that they're a good hour and a half two hours like we're and we don't what I call deep dive that deep but we do scratch a major part of the surface away and I get people also I ask people going can you share your stories can you what what you know about this site and then I take down some of those stories and then I feed them into the next walking tour uh, and so there's a sense of participation in the walking tours as well do you do them with people from Cork or for mostly yeah. from outside um, I, mean, I mean they started off as a tourism product we say 25 years ago um, but now I, I, it's probably a sense of what I call community tourism where people like people in local local people come out I mean the lock tour that I mentioned I ran that three times 
and for the most part like the first two times it was people from around the lock like w- walking to our number one I'd say half the people who lived around the lock came out and, and they all know each other it's like John, Mary how are you doing um, and a lot of them went back to their house for tea and scones afterwards and I liked I loved that whole concept that people who haven't seen each other in a while kind of come out and and I mean, my the thing about this kind of 25 years of kind of building this community capacity as well and building up an interest um, is that, like, during a, a Heritage Week in Cork, I could have 100 people in front of me. Um, you could get 120 on a very warm night during Heritage Week. Some of the places like The Lock, Black Rock, you never get less than 45, 50 people. And you might have run that tour, ran that tour. 11, 10, 11 times. The work coast tour I have, for example, never get less than 40 people on it. I've run it 13, 14 times. There's a huge, huge interest. Um, and you're drawing people who just have a general interest and in, they've heard about a work house or there might be a general interest. They've lived in the area for 30 years um, or they're from that area. They've lived all their life there. Or it could be a, a doctor or a nurse who, who worked there or who trained there. Um, I find the hospital sites are actually quite popular. Um, you kind of pick up a lot of people um, with different backgrounds um so no it's i i've enjoyed it over the years it's quite challenging i mean for me i mean i i'm born and bred in banalock um but i my interest is, is in all the story and the stories um of cork and I'm, I'm very conscious of that word history that you you have high story in the middle of it and i, I like the storytelling of it and different elements um and i like i like experimenting with it as well um and the i i, I like I enjoy and I like the fact that I suppose I'm a member of the city council. I'm also part of the story board as well. I've won a, some part of the story board um, where I can kind of push for certain things to happen in the city. You might not always get that. Um, I'm only one of thir- 31 voices here in the city council uh, in City Hall. Um, so but, so I've, I've enjoyed all the different levels and I've, I've, I work hard across uh, the different levels um, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm very passionate about Cork. Uh, and, and what I've said over the last 10 minutes, we haven't mentioned any local history. It's just different kind of projects and different ways, different lenses, different lenses, different ways of looking at a city and how we kind of tease out, tease out its story. Um, so I'm, I'm heavily involved in local schools. Um, and I like the whole idea that we need to tell the story of our neighbourhoods a lot more. Um, you'd see a lot more discussion online on the importance of placemaking and making sure our neighbourhoods are up to scratch and that people have a, a safe and inclusive society space and that people should have a voice in their community. You're hearing that a lot more, that um, the ind- individual voice is important. Um, and so with my local history, I empower that individual voice and that community voice. Um, yeah. Like, what's the import? What is the importance of having a knowledge of your history and your heritage and in in the place that you're you're living or you're growing up in? Um, I think I mean sense of place and sense of identity is important to everyone. Um, I do say that like local history is spoken at the dinner table every day, but in a personal way. Like people at a dinner table every day or a lunch table, um, if people still are sit around for their dinner at six o'clock, will speak about their family, uh, their family, family's involvement in the place. They'll go, do you remember no, Uncle John said that and Auntie Mary said that or your grandmother said this? That for many people, local history and history is a personal thing, a personal connection. And 
I've, I'm a strong advocate that whatever we do in a history and geography sense, it should have a personal connection to it. Um, so there's no point having a, what I call a, a top-down approach, um, that there's one voice in the top going, this is the way our history is going to be taught. I'm a kind of, it has to be kind of a mixture of top-down and bottom-up. But for me, I'm a, a community person. Um, and I, I, I run community projects as well. Um, so I, I have a, McCarthy's community talent competition. I have a McCarthy's make a model board project. Um, I have uh, I kind of have a, an art project that I do as well with kids once a year or maybe every two years. Um, so there there are other elements as well. I have a musical society in the city. Um, I have other hobbies and other interests, but they're all about just getting people involved in your local community. And I think that for me, I think is what local history kind of falls into that. It, it, local history doesn't belong just to one person it belongs to everyone and that when you collect all these stories eat these family stories community stories they all add up one story isn't above another story um, yes there is the collective memory of Cork City where if you give a talk as I said you have to mention things like St. Findar Father Matthew Nanonagel Terence McSweeney Tomás McCurtain and outside of that like the canvas is fairly open, I actually find. Um, but I find on the walking tours, people will go, well, my aunt, my uncle was involved in that. My aunt was heavily involved in setting that up. And those for me are actually really, really, really important. Like, I do a lot of oral history work. Um, I did a project a few years ago in my own uh, home area, Bannalock. It was a 75th kind of anniversary book for the local church. And I interviewed like 80 people living in Bannalock. Um, and so the age was age bracket was between maybe fifty and a hundred, and just collected all these stories and got loads of stuff, loads of stories on Cork in the nineteen forties, nineteen fifties, and to a degree as well, nineteen thirties when Bannalock was kind of being built by private developers, um, and a very, a very different story to the story of Granabraher or Turner's Cross, where uh, public social housing was kind of constructed. Um, but I, I think we don't do enough oral history work in the city. We don't do enough collecting those stories. Um, now, that being said, I'm a big fan of the Cork uh, Folklore Project, which is uh, based up in Farron Ferris and the North Cathedral. They've got like an oral history hub there. Uh, they do really, really great work. But we need to hear a lot more of people's voices. And we need to empower people and, and celebrate their voices as well. Uh, there is a lovely undercurrent in Cork of energy artistic energy and a wisdom in Cork um, which I've come across it doesn't always what I call bubble up to the surface it's like it's, you, you you take up a floorboard and you see people singing dancing in a community centre the next one they're playing bowls or and the next one could be like a, a group of young people doing something it's it's incredible what the city actually is involved with and then when you kind of get out there I suppose when I'm doing local history research, I'm out there, I'm talking to people, I'm trying to collect stories. But you get to see this whole rake of other people's, of other material as well, like life itself. Um, and I'm a big fan, like, like that Cork is an evolving place. Like, uh, um, and Cork people are also very proud. Um, if you do them wrong, it'll come back to haunt you in so many different ways. Like the door shuts in your face. So you have to be really, really careful. I think when you're dealing with memory, um, it's also like a fizzy bottle of water. You fizz it up and you take off the cap and it explodes in your face. So keep the water still, just keep it flowing and keep <laughs> it nice. Um, and the thing about the past as well is that it's, uh, there are certain things in Cork's past that are 
quite uh, you, you, always, you if you write a story on it you're always going to get an email afterwards going oh you're wrong there or you're right there or I can add to that story where when you stay out of the collective memories things are the what I call the the stories that must be told um, there's an openness there to to explore those stories as well um, I'd like to think that the column I have in the Cork Independent it has gone into the collective memory stories but also to all the stories around that um, as much as possible and one story probably leads on someone will say oh I remember that happened and then another story yeah. kind of comes out of that yeah and it's amazing I, I, I tried to explore that in my Riverly Valley series um, and so I would if someone gave me a recommendation so you need to talk to John Murphy on the top of the hill I'd go up and talk to John Murphy on the top of the hill and then John Murphy would go you need to talk to Mary O'Sullivan and then I'd actually go and find Mary O'Sullivan um, and then Mary O'Sullivan would go oh you need to talk to uh, John McCarthy I'd go and talk to John McCarthy and then that John McCarthy would go you need to talk to Mary O'Sullivan and all of a sudden you actually find there's actually a loop and you're kind of going right I managed to get all that story <laughs> and you're yeah. like you're moving on again I, I I like the whole idea of experimenting with memory and experimenting with history as well. Um, that's, um, and I suppose I spent, I spent the bones of eight years doing, I suppose, a PhD in it and trying to, ex- and really had to deep dive into it and really understand it. And, and that process kind of really has helped me as well understand my, the city and region a bit more. I do find as well that, I mean, apart from the Riverlea, like I've, I, I've, I've lucky, I'm, I'm lucky as well, I've 21 books published and some of those books actually are based in the county so I've got three books in the Riverley Valley I've got one in West Cork and one in Cork Harbour I've one coming out next March called The Little Book of Cork Harbour which is just full of snippets of stories of Cork Harbour so I'm, I'm beginning to look at, at a, a more regional history as well I've got a, a North Cork through time book as well and a West Cork through time book um, and also I have a history project in county schools um, now this year I'm I'm not running it. I had a back operation in August, which kind of threw me back as well. Like that, all of a sudden, like I, I couldn't give walking tours for some, for two months. So only in the last few weeks, I'm kind of giving walking tours again, and it's still sore. So I'm not, yeah, not a superman. <laughs> kind of like, where do you start your your regular walking tour in Cork City? Usually at the National Monument um, on the Grand Parade, um, and a lot of my walking tours would use kind of use public squares, and usually. You start at, the pub, at a public square or a stop at one, and I always say to people, look around, and you can see the multiplicity of stories. So it's not just the story of the National Monument. Um, so if you start at the National Monument, I actually usually start with telling people that look, Cork has experienced every phase of Irish urban development, and I go, it, it, has, it had a monastery, it had a Viking Age uh, a village. Um, it had an Anglo-Norman wall town. It took down its wall town in the 1700s and expanded. It had a Victorian era of building train networks and very gorgeous buildings across the city. It had 20th century war of independence plus then rebuilding the city after that and expanding social housing kind of policy and building suburbs and building churches and new roads um, and building airports building an airport and other elements like that so I kind of set that scene but also the National Monument I was like well you're at the National Monument it was constructed in 1906 it was put here 10 years before the Easter Rising in Dublin which shows that there was a healthy respect for nationalism um, plus what I call a, a respect for the British economy, like that Cork was part of the British Empire for 800 years um, and that we made a lot of money from the empire. Um, and I think as as a small port city, 
we wove our ambitions with the British Empire as well over the 800 years of colonization that we made money but we also fought against them. It's kind of interesting that the war, the main bulk of the War of Independence, we say, was fought in Cork. Um, but that being said, I can show you pictures from 1910s of the Union Jack flag being flown on Patrick Street proudly. Um, but then I can show you another picture, more or less around the same day of a Sinn Féin march. Um, and I like the whole idea that all these different voices again were empowered. Um, and, and for me, when I write about that, I will show and do a story on the Union Jack flag. But in the following week, I'll do Sinn Féin. Or the following week, I'll go Chamber of Commerce economy story, uh, and I, I tried to mention. So I tried to move the lens around and show the different things, so we don't get s- stuck in a corner that it's just one thing in Cork. And all, I mean things like that particular square, that National Monument Square. There was a statue of King George II uh, on a pedestal, which was smashed in uh, October 1862. Um, and someone actually took the head of George II and actually put it in their shop window in the Grand Parade on display, kind of going, I've got the head. Look at this is great. Um, but at the same time, then I, I kind of talk about uh, the work of the Presentation Sisters, Nano Nagel. There's a Nano Nagel bridge there. Um, and I talk about that there was a poverty in the city. So it's not just nationalism. There's also a poverty kind of element. Um, and I talk, might talk about the World War I memorial where people went out to fight with the British. Um, and I talk about, we say, the canals that were in the city. So I would kind of set the scene at point number one that you're dealing with everywhere you stand and look around, there's a, a muddle of these stories uh, and that you need to be aware of that. It's not just one story. Every place is maybe 10 stories. Um, and I say that as well because of my walking tours. I have like uh, the, the suburban walking tours. I, I stop at locations that generally can host 50 plus people like um, we've narrow streets in Cork sometimes so you can't really give a walking tour of Barrack Street but you can go into Elizabeth Ford um, you can't really give can't stop in Shandon Street but you can stop at the base of the street or stop by Shandon um, so there are certain places you'd love to be able to stop I've got one on the Victorian Quarter um, where I talk about Tomas and Curtin and I talk about that sort of clash of what should be called Victorian Quarter because because of the architecture, but then I would also talk about um, the, the relevance of Tomas and Curtin, plus the shops in the street, the Everyman Palace, or the Victoria Buildings, or warehouses, or bakeries like Thompson's Bakery. Um, yeah, so it's that's interesting. I was in the seeing the um, Tom Barry's Global Days in Ireland play in the Everyman, and in part of that play, he describes the burning of McCurtain Street. And you're in McCartney Street when he was talking about it. Yeah. It's fascinating, kind of just yeah. rich history there as well. Yeah. I mean, there, there's certain areas that I'm stronger in than others. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't have a strength in the Irish War of Independence in Cork. And anytime I've written about that, that's where I get loads of letters. Not because I'm out of sync with the narrative. It's just people have, people have done a lot of family history on it. Um, and there needs to be uh, an area somewhere in Cork that can collect all these stories um, as well, um, and collect different sides of the story. Um, sometimes it's not, as I said, it's not just one side. There are different sides to a person, to a place, a square, public square, uh, and then multiple sides to when you're studying a city. Um, so I mean, uh, and usually at the National Monument, I set that scene kind of. This is what we're dealing with, and then I launch into 
let, let's start from the very beginning and let's let's start with the myth of Saint Finbar and then kind of let's layer it up. And I, I'm also I love old maps, of course. So I hand out a map booklet going, here's the local history maps of the city. Here's about five of them, and I can use the maps and go, look, here's what life was like. Um, so you're you're also trying to, and it's interesting if if I have a group of locals in front of me. I can kind of I can quote different streets and places, but if it's a group of international students or tourists, you have to you kind of have to go with them a small bit. Like if I have a group of Americans standing in front of me, I actually might talk more about Cork's connection with America. If I so if I say like oh eight twenty was the first Viking Age invasion, I might also say that the Vikings um, are supposed to go to America at some stage, or especially if I'm the, I might talk about. The development of uh, places like New York and Boston in the 1700s and Cork trading with places like New York and Boston, uh, North and South Carolina. So it depends who's in front of me. So if I, if I have a German tourist, I would certainly refer to the fact that the spires um, of St. Finbar's Cathedral kind of emulate the spires you see in Cologne in Western Germany. Um, or if I've got British-based tourists, I would kind of say that our early trade that we know of, the historical written trade, um, is from Bristol, Western... How far back does that go? The, the Anglo-Norman attack on Cork, the staging point on the British side, or the English side, was from Bristol. Um, and interestingly enough, Bristol's coat of arms is a tower on a ship, and our coat of arms is two towers on a ship. Now, it, we, we do have... There are various explanations how our coat of arms came into being, but none of them kind of really hark back into the historical records. There's no one kind of says, this is what it really means. There's kind of a, a cloud around it. Um, but certainly when you, when you go, to, some of the first pottery they find underneath the, the old wall town area of Cork, like South Main Street, they actually find Bristol pottery, Ham Green pottery, and they find Redcliffe pottery, which is uh, St. Mary's Redcliffe Church is actually still there, and they still make pottery in that part. Um, we also traded with Bordeaux in the early 1300s. Um, and it's amazing, all these pieces of pottery that we find, there are shards, and there's parts of these uh, pots up on display in Cork City Museum. Um, and you, you, so you can see these kind of international kind of connections. Um, I mean, what's interesting is one of the reasons I decided to do the Riverlee Valley study is that there is a legend that St. Finbar, the patron saint of Cork, in his late teens, um, he set up a monastery in what's now affectionately called Guganbara. So if you trans- translate that into back into English, you've got like Headed One's uh, Rocky Island, um, a, a pilgrimage site in the mi- on, on an island in the middle of a lake. And then there's a legend that he left that particular site to find a, a new place to set up a monastery and set it up on the site of what's now St. Finbar's Cathedral. And a whole monastery kind of grew around that particular site. And I always think that something like College Road, the road to UCC, was some, I always, in my head, have some sort of central road trackway that ran through that monastery. Um, like UCC have asserted the legend of St. Finbar as well, kind of over the years. Like they've got the motto where Finbar taught, um, let Munster learn. Um, but like it's there, there are books and articles that perhaps Finbar didn't exist. But the element, the thing is that this legend or myth inspired the construction of several churches over many centuries. You look around Cork as a city of spires, and whether you're religious or not, um, many of the churches are very beautiful kind of creations um, and very much inspired by other churches in Western Europe. Um, and that's 
I, I like the whole idea that at the docks in Cork, there was conversations kind of ongoing every day on what's happening in your city now, where are you from? Um, and that idea taken by a docker and went to the local pub who gave it to a local architect. And it kind of, I, I always have that these conversations that people had in the past also led to this city that has a very, very higgledy-piggledy architecture. There was a writer, uh, a man called Daniel Corkery, who wrote a book called Threshold of Quiet in the 1910s. And he described the architecture of the city as higgledy-piggledy. Mm. And I like that whole term. Like we, we don't have rows at the same type of buildings in Cork. Uh, our buildings are different heights, different widths, different lengths. It's funny you say that because just yesterday I was sitting on the wall of Bishop Lucy Park, looking across at the English Market, and you see there's the block there with the capital, the English Market, and one or two other buildings. There's like the Bean and Leaf ca- uh, Cafe, and then Alder Plunkett Street, and then across, then the buildings all all of a sudden become sort of square. Yeah, but before that, they're kind of uh, different. Every every front is different. Yeah, which I which I love. And I mean, also, I mean, if you're a photographer, this is a very photogenic city. Like, it's a really gorgeous. Or if you're an artist, it's a really gorgeous city to try and capture. And it's, the thing is that you can't capture all of it because it keeps moving. The light keeps moving on the buildings. Um, I always say to people as well on the tours that, like, we we sit kind of looking to the Atlantic, so we get loads of rain. So we get a lot of droplets in the air. So when the sun comes out, the city lights up like a lamp. Plus we've got limestone buildings, white limestone buildings, um, slash grey limestone buildings. And that those buildings light up like a lamp. So like on a January sunny day, you'll see we walk around in Cork like with sunshades. Um, and I and I like the whole idea that the, the light that hits the city also plays with the city. Um, and so if you're trying to take a photograph of, cer- of a certain place, if you were there all day, you probably get multiple images of that. Of that, I mean, I've always, I'm always amazed. You walking down the street and the sun would hit off a building, which you've, you, I've never seen that angle before, and you'd see an element of the building which I haven't seen before. Yeah. Um, and we don't. I, I can tell you, we don't. There is no encyclopedic guide to the history of Cork's buildings. I can't say here is the history of every building. Um, a lot of it's down to just reading the building. If you see kind of rough red brick, it's early 1800s. If you see bright red brick, it's late 1800s. If you see yellow brick, uh, some of it could be 1700s, some of it could be 1820s. Um, so it's kind of slab brick. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a, there's a lot there to discover. But uh, one thing that I really love is that you'd be walking around the city and you'd see people either putting a mural on a wall, not graffiti, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Mad About Cork um, and the, the images they put on ASB kind of traffic boxes or um, on walls and just showcasing either Cork characters or some, some element of Cork. And I like, I, I like that. Um, and you know, you know, I think what I like as well is that the suburbs overlook the city as well, as like people can see each other. There's, there's something very familial we were all kind of one big family and Cork people are renowned for giving out to each other kind of like you yeah. turn on radio station in the morning you'll see people like condemning the city but then someone comes in from the outside condemning the city and they just turn on mass on that particular person it's is, interesting what you were saying earlier about the when you have locals on the tour that it changes the dynamic of the tour a little bit in Belfast now there's a lot of tours being done I say down the Falls Road and things and I think that for the people who are giving the tours when there's locals there puts them a little bit on edge because they have to be a little bit more uh, like direct with the facts of what happened or some yeah. people have different interpretations of what happened. Yeah. But I'm interested in um, learning a little bit more about Nan O'Neagle because she's at that centre after getting developed recently. Yeah, I know, and it's a fantastic centre. Um, 
I mean, I suppose Nano Nagel, I, I suppose, came in, developed the presentation Sister Convent in the 1770s, originally from Killavullen, North Cork, um, was kind of an Ursuline sister, and then set up this presentation order. Um, and of course, then the presentation order went went global, kind of in times in time. But I would say that that I suppose what's now the Nano Nagel Center um, for years. You could actually just open a, a little door off the off the main road at Douglas Street and go in and visit her grave, and it was like a really hidden gem. It was like you go into this graveyard and many of the presentation sisters that had been uh, resident in the Douglas Street presentation convent had been buried there. But it was a hidden gem, and I, I'd bring people in there if I, if I was doing a walking tour of the South Parish or Douglas Street or Red Abbey area, uh, the medieval tower there, the old medieval tower. Um, I bring people in there and people are always kind of amazed and they're like, oh, they'd always be saying like, how come no one knows about it? And I was like, well, it's kind of a hidden gem. It's also like a graveyard. It's, it, yeah, it belongs to the city, but kind of belongs as well to the presentation sisters. Um, but because of the, I suppose the presentation sister numbers dropping really rapidly into single figures, um, they've basically, the presentation sisters have invested in this, public site. I mean, there's now an interpretive centre. Um, some of the old buildings that have survived from 1770s are still there when you walk around the complex. There's now like a mini lecture hall. Um, you can hire the church out, the Goldie Chapel, uh, for a concert if you want to. Um, there's always. It's also connected into the College of Architecture kind of next door. Um, so uh, the whole site actually nearly is about placemaking and there's different levels. Like you walk up the steps and you, kind of, you, you can drop down to the different gardens and buildings and it's actually really well done and it's got kind of several um awards um and i suppose that's that is the good of cork cork's architecture we also have the bad we've got ruined derelict buildings and we're trying to deal with that as well um so it, it's a best practice um site um and plus what was interesting is that when so when they opened that i suppose there was a hope that they make thousands of euros with the interpretive center um, and they're doing well with it. But what's interesting is that more and more people are kind of coming in and going, I went to the school here. I was attached to the convent. Have you any roll books? And now they've actually opened up kind of a genealogy center there. And that seems to be doing really, really, really well. So again, it comes back to this like personal connection. People came to the site going, I went to school here. Yes, we learned about Nano Nagel, but I was also part of the story here. Yeah. Uh, and so they're there's a really great guy Shane Clark who's the manager of that particular site and they've got a great educational officer Danielle and they're they're plowing ahead with different things but they're finding that people are coming into the space to find themselves and where they fit into the story um, and I think that's probably is, that's the history conundrum as well like I always get asked like, how do we get people involved more in history and geography um, find the personal connection or even you could ask the same question of how would we get more and more people interested in local politics or civics or city hall find the personal connection like what what's people's interest in the city and certainly that particular site it looks like the school element is actually one that's mm. actually emerging um but again like as i said every site has different stories different angles you can come at it from different ways and it's amazing outside of nanonagel i mean um last Saturday night, uh, Douglas Street won a National Pride of Place Award uh, for getting together and I was like, let's do something for the street. And they have an autumn uh, festival they actually set up um, every year. Um, and they also have uh, 
the Cork Food Policy kind of co- Cork Food Policy Council doing work on the street. Uh, you'll see there's plants uh, in Red Abbey. You'll see there's food being growing grown up the street. There's a St Stephen's Lane Lab. They have sustainable food lab up there, um, and so there's there's really interesting things happening as well in the city. You just turn a corner and there's another hidden gem. So it's not even not even Nano Nagel's grave, which is quite significant when you see it. Um, it's also the the wider things that are happening on different streets and different kind of quarters, uh, and I, that's well, it's to be welcome. It's quite exciting as well. I like it. Is Nano Nagel's legacy that she helped a lot of people who were in poverty at the time when she was around? Yeah, yeah. I mean, seventeen sixties, seventeen seventies Cork. I, I can tell you that, like in the year seventeen hundred, the population of Cork was twenty thousand people. The population of Cork in 1780 was 75,000 people. So 20,000 to 75,000 people. So there was this huge demand for more schools, food, housing. Like ten, and the main, the, main, the main reason for the population boom was because of the economic boom that was going on in butter and beef. We were exporting 100,000 barrels of butter, 60,000 barrels of beef, slaughtering 80,000 um, cattle every year, um, taking the hides from some of the doors and tanning them, creating leather. We were exporting 100,000 barrels of, of beer, 100,000 barrels of whiskey by 1820. Uh, this was a, there was an engine to this city that just churned out stuff for the British Empire, and a lot of people made a lot of money. Well, maybe 10% of the people made money and 90% didn't. So the 90% is what Nano Nagel concentrated on. So there would have been huge poverty around Barrack Street area. There would have been huge slums. I mean, if you do walk around Barrack Street today, you'll see, still see some of the old laneways. Some of them have been widened in 1860s. Um, there was a thing called Cork Improved Dwellings Company, which is a private uh, as private employers in the city creating houses for their workers. So off Barrack Street, you have things like St. Kevin Square, Prosperity Square, Evergreen Buildings. They're all purposely built like in 1860s onwards. For workers? Was it for workers, yeah. The Cork Improved Dwellings Company, who developed 420 houses between 1860 and 1960. The original plan was to develop more, um, but as time went on, they wanted to kind of reinvest the rents they were getting back into creating new houses, but the price and the cost of houses began to increase and the rents were remaining the same. So it was just quite difficult to find more funding. They eventually folded in 1960. Um, but if you go up around Shandon Street, uh, around St. Anne's Church itself, you'll see old laneways there that have survived the test of time. I think you have to imagine those over 200 years ago, uh, like riddled with dirt and mud and sewage um, and just the smell would have been horrific. Uh, around Shandon Street in particular, like on one side of the street, you'd have old butcheries cutting up the cattle. And on the other side, you had the butter market. So it had been constantly, it has been full of horse and carts. Like they're saying that, Fair Hill, and the top of Fair Hill is in Churchfield is a, a sports green, um, just beyond the telecom. I was going to say telecom Aaron, but uh, the the telephone mast on the top of the hill. But basically, they held the eighty thousand cattle there and sent them down like a conveyor belt into the slaughterhouses, meat into barrels, barrels on the ships, the ships gone. Next, that was going on for bit. not so long ago, wasn't it? Like, there's people who've who've said to me, old fellas up in Fair Hill, they said they remember. Yeah the animals being sent down the hill. Yeah, and there's still, I mean, some of the butchers, I mean, Nolan's on Shandon Street are part of that culture from 100 years ago. Now, the numbers of cattle did drop, uh, and the butter market as well was out-competed by foreign markets. Um, like cheap margarine products kind of crept in in early 20th century um, Europe, so we were, we were kind of out-competed by the Danes 
uh, or competed by other mat- markets, the Dutch markets. Um, and that also, as I said, uh, I said earlier on in the interview, has led me to look at, okay, what was happening in these other cities? What's the knock-on effect on Cork? Like if you, if you, if you look at the at wider Atlantic Europe, there are 500 cities in Atlantic Europe. We're just one. So we were also bound up with this like political network and economic network and trying to get ahead. We'd have we'd have people out there in different cities um, saying buy from Cork, buy from Cork. Um, but things like the butter market, we were out competing on the close in 1924. Um, the the cattle trade, yeah, was. Still in operation, 1940s, 50s, 60s. Um, I certainly picked up stories in that history book, that old history book I mentioned in Banlock, where um, there was a transport company called Murphy's that were collecting pigs from local market gardens and sending them to Denny's and Blackpool for slaughter, making money from them. But eventually, things like Murphy's Transport is now a transport truck company in Banlock. They're not collecting pigs. For, for Denny's in Blackpool. Uh, I think Denny's in Blackpool is now a Blackpool guard station apartment block. Um, and an interesting thing as well, as well about giving all these walking tours is that you learn more about the suburbs. Sometimes our focus is too much on the city centre, uh, and that's what my suburban tours are about. So I can cross-reference. On, if I'm giving a walking tour of Black Rock, I'll actually cross-reference Sunday as well, that in, in another part of the city, house building was also going and going on, or it was a middle class rise in the 1830s, 1840s, and yeah, things like that. Um, How has the, you could say that today, the kind of energy epicenter of Cork City is in Patrick Street, like that's the main street, but how has that changed over the over the centuries? Um, I suppose St. Patrick Street at one time wasn't the centre focus. I mean, the centre focus for, between... I suppose the Vikings built a settlement on what's known kind of South Main Street. I mean, the city is built across 16, 17 marshy islands. So the one of the, on one of the first marshy islands, the Vikings built a settlement uh, on what's now South Main Street. And of course, they found remains of Viking Age houses when they were when they're in the midst of this construction of the event centre and the apartments in the last couple of months in the last year. Um, and some of that stuff's on display in the museum in, in Fitzgerald's Park. And then we had an Anglo-Norman wall town that extended the Viking Age town and created North Main Street area. And then there was a wall around two islands and the South Main Street, North Main Street, Southgate Bridge, Northgate Bridge. And there was a middle gate, a water gate called Watergate, uh, to leave ships into a little port. That was doing really, really well, that whole kind of complex for um, for maybe 400 years. Um, so 1300 to 1700, doing really, really well. And the city was attacked once, and it fell. And after that, like, the town walls were just left in disarray, and the merchants of the town were like, there's no point in putting up back, back up town walls if we're going to be attacked. And so there was merchants that kind of applied for planning permission, in inverted commas, to take down their walls. Um, so you got uh, one family called the Tucky family. They were a Quaker family. Did a deal with a family called the Doonscombe family. There's Tucky Street. Is that what their name is? Yeah, right? Tucky Street. And so Tuckies were the first to kind of take down part of their town wall. And then they did a deal with another Quaker who owned a marshy island, uh, which would now be like uh, part of what's now Oliver Plunkett Street. And they did a deal. And so 1715... Uh, by 1715, what we know as Oliver Plunkett Street was laid out with Mr. Doonscombe. Um, and so that began to develop. And as part of the deal, I mean, Doonscombe and Tucky had to go to the Corporation of Cork looking for permission. And the Corporation of Cork said, OK, we'll grant you this expansion, but you need to throw a bridge um, across a central canal that led into the wall town. Now, the central canal in our time is St. Patrick Street. Uh, and they threw a drawbridge across it. Patrick Street was the canal? Yeah. 
if you've looked at St. Patrick Street, it's got a, it's, it's a, there's a curving channel to it. They never straightened out the channel when they actually filled it in, they left it. But the probably the first thing to be developed was a drawbridge going across it. And off St. Patrick Street today, down the lower end uh, by Dunn Stores, we have a street called Drawbridge Street. Um, and then on, as time went on, we, this kind of French church street area began to be developed by a group of Huguenots who were, devo- who were involved with a French church. Um, and their cemetery is still there, isn't it? Their yeah. cemetery is still there. Um, one of their property developers was a guy called Mr. Lavitt, um, Lavitsky. Their, their minister uh, was a guy called Fontaine, who had a house in Cork Harbour, which they call it Fontainstown, Fountainstown. These are all like places that we know. Um, and so basically you've got Quakers on one island, a bridge going across across the river channel to another island being developed. And in time, both islands were kind of developed and the central channel was left. Um, the town walls were taken down. And then by 1780, they decided to fill in the central channel uh, and fill in a lot of the canals in the city. Um, a lot of it because people were throwing the rubbish into the water and there was a build-up. Of, of rubbish and manure and when the tide went out there was a stench in the city uh, and the the corporation plus the merchants in late 1770s 1780s were like enough is enough so they filled them in so you'd see a lot of kind of lamenting these days oh I wish the canals were still there but when they were there people didn't look after them um, so technically they, they, they filled in the canals plus also arched them over like a series of culverts so if you talk to corporation workers or council workers who work in the sewers, they'll talk about these huge caverns beneath the city, um, which were all part of like the reclamation process. Like 1700s onwards, a lot of the, a lot of the city is reclaimed into what we see as the modern day city centre. We knew we know very little about the reclamation process. It's only through archaeologists present on sites that are presently being developed that we can figure out kind of what actually happened. Um, in the mid-1990s, we had a main drainage project in the city, putting down new sewers and uh, trying to clean up the River Lee, um, to keeping the manure out of the River Lee and pumping it through treatment plants, um, taking the, the manure away, the sewage away. Um, but they found all these old culverts and they found all these different ways. So like, technically, any old building in Cork that was built before 1900 was built on tree trunks going onto the ground. So you think about Cork City Hall, it's probably built over, like the old city hall is built on 300, 400 tree trunks going to the ground. Um, now, the, the, I suppose the city hall at present is 1936, but we do have records that I'm actually driving down uh, tree trunks into the ground. Um, we all, You think of any of the old buildings on the South Mall next to the Imperial Hotel, uh, like the Imperial Hotel is 1810s in date, but there's buildings next to that from 1750s, tree trunks into the ground. Any of the material they found ar- around South Main Street, North Main Street, are tree trunks going into the ground. Um, one of the houses they found in January, February of this year, or even earlier, uh, on the event centre site, um, South Main Street site, um, they actually found, yeah, they were putting timbers into the ground, but also they were cutting out pieces of clay and actually laying it on the floor and building up these pieces of clay. Uh, so they were reclaiming their house floor. Um, from sort of a marshy ground, was from it? marshy ground. And, they're, they're, they, and they also show that beneath that clay floor was huge evidence of like one metre reclamation and trying to raise the level of the islands and knit the islands together. There would have been little streams running through the islands as well. It's not just like a a solid island and a river running around it to meet the tide. There were streams running through it. It was like a huge feat of engineering to build a city on a swamp. Um, And the thing is you can learn from other cities that have done that as well. Like, I mean, I'm always keeping my eye on how they reclaimed Amsterdam or 
how they reclaim parts of what we say Copenhagen or like Brussels is also built on a swamp, part of Paris is built on a swamp. Uh, most of Ireland's cities are built on the riverbank. Some of Limerick is built in the middle of a river, but you, you Derry, Waterford, Dublin, Belfast, um, they're all built on the banks of the river. We're built in the middle of a river. Uh, and that has also hindered Cork's development over the years that like there's only so much of a city centre we can build, it's on a swamp. Um, and then the city kind of spread onto the hills and kind of be over the hills and kind of spread out. Um, so the city city's development was hindered by the marshy soil beneath it, that if you build construct a building, you're going to have to invest money in good, in good foundations. Plus, if you build in the suburbs, you're going to have to have good foundations to, to and level out a site for yourself. And also in the suburbs, you're dealing with huge uh, rock faces beneath the suburbs as well. So if you live in Banlock to Black Rock, you're dealing with a limestone ridge beneath your buildings. You talk to people who have houses there and they'll talk about uh, struggling with the foundations of their houses or struggling the, when they were constructed 50, 60 years ago or built on a, a limestone uh, ridge beneath their houses and they're struggling with that. Um, you talk to people who, who, who are in the north side and they're struggling with sandstone rock. Um, you, you, I think we mentioned McCurtain Street earlier on. You go behind McCurtain Street up onto Wellington Road, and you see any any house that's been redeveloped there, and you can see the sandstone ridge. Or go into Green's Restaurant into the gorgeous waterfall behind us, and you'll see the sandstone ridge. Um, now it's easy to to carve out from sandstone, not as easy with limestone. And of course, the white and red, the white limestone, the red sandstone, give the cork colours as Is well. Is that where it comes from? Yeah, that's where oh. it comes from. Um, and so you also have the story of these quarries in the suburbs, uh, where they got the stone from. And some of the quarries they use really good cork limestone. Some of the quarries weren't good cork limestone. So a lot of our public buildings are from Beaumont Quarry, uh, Carrigmore Quarry, and the quarry is now I call it a biodiversity. Uh, I suppose square or ecosystem. There's a lot of kind of nature walks kind of going on and things like that. Um, so when you're studying the city, you also have to kind of have in your head like why did they build a swamp here and like what's where's the stone from where's the architect from um like i have a, I have a new book at the moment called cork and 50 buildings and it's i've kind of peppered the book with these kind of arguments going if you build a city on a swamp these are the these are the concerns that you'd actually have or these are the concerns of people like through the ages um and we do have leaning towers of cork um, Christchurch, which is a building, uh, the fort building on the site, now a gorgeous concert hall in an old church. Um, the fort church was built in this kind of the early around 1720, um, but the tower itself is sinking into the soil, and over the years they've tried to kind of pump in concrete underneath it to make sure the tower stays up, and they've managed to do that. Um, but it's like a leaning tower of Cork. Um, if you, you go. Western Road, uh, and you'll see the buildings sinking. You see the road sinking and the buildings sinking back. And I always think as well, if you ever go down Oliver Plunkett Street from, we say, the Grand Parade side, you look, you see the buildings in very good light when the sun hits them, kind of sinking back off the street, like very subtly. On the left or the right? Uh, both sides. You'll see that. You'll see the sun. It's very, very subtle. It's very, very subtle. I mean, it's said that the multi-story car parks are sinking at like 0.1 of a centimetre every year. That's not an awful lot, but in a multi-story car park situation, concrete sitting on uh, on a marshy soil. You think of the Elysian Tower. It's built on a riverbank. I mean, I remember when the, when the when the foundations of that. I mean, there's probably more of the building beneath the surface 
in terms of foundations, uh, in terms of the general apartment blocks, and then you've got the main kind of tower itself. Um, a really interesting building to look at is the where electric is. You see that the the other side of those buildings are around about electric or Parliament yeah. Bridge. You see the underside when you're looking across the river. Yeah, you can kind of see the wooden foundations underneath them. Yeah, which is, yeah, which is great actually to see, and you get to see you get to see people's struggle as well and their concerns like, in terms of constructing and building on a swamp. Um, I wanted to ask actually, what do you think about the proposal to build the walls around the river? Um, there's various ways of looking at that. I mean, people call it the wall scheme. Um, the walls are not going to be the height of people's heads all the way around. Um, I've been watching this kind of closely. Like if you think of 50% of the key walls um, are just r- rusted railings that really, if we got rid of those, it's not a bad thing. Um, the OPW plan is to, ke- to clean up the key walls. That's not a bad thing. Um, the element which I have concerns about is that some of the limestone walls would be smashed up and they'll put in a concrete wall and they'll reclad the concrete wall with limestone. So it still looks like a limestone wall, but it's not authentic as such. Some of the long runs on Pope's Key of limestone wall are going to be kept. Um, I've, uh, there's been a, a lot of concerns that all oh, the trees are going to be cut down. They're not. There's a lot of uh, a lot of spin out there. Um, but I do. I have raised in the council chamber here that whatever we do um, needs to respect that heritage but I'm very conscious of the fact that we do have river rain flooding we do have tidal flooding I'm completely in agreement with that we need a tidal barrier but I'm, I'm not for the tidal barrier that's been proposed at Little Island I'm for let's build it out in Cork Harbour because like what about Balanacurra or Middleton or what about all the, the harbour towns that could be actually flooded out Douglas Village um, Carrigaline, um, they're all going to come under pressure as well um, in 50, 60 years' time. So that's another big thing is it's going to come down to we need a billion euros to build a tidal barrier in the harbour. Has Cork City Council a billion euros? No, no. So, but I, I completely, I mean, I, I respect, you're probably referring to the Save Cork City campaign. I completely respect that campaign. Don't get me wrong. I suppose for me, being part of the story here, I'm trying to. And move some of their ideas and how do you make those in a realistic sense where do you find the 1 billion euros or even even if we just did build just the tidal barrier in the harbour Cork City Council does not have 100 million euros in Little, for a barrier in Little Island so one can make the argument ask government um, but I, I see in a government sense that a tidal barrier is not in their national planning framework um, proposed recently and that's actually that was one of the things I said here on the floor that if it's not in the framework it's not on the radar to be developed, which is a shame. So, again, there's different ways of looking at it. Um, I do understand that there is a further conservation report on those gorgeous kind of key walls. I suppose a lot of those key walls are also built because of floods. Uh, going back to this kind of uh, this local history and engineering a city on a swamp, uh, I can show you images of Northgate Bridge wiped out, St. Patrick's Bridge wiped out, and then they're rebuilding the bridges and rebuilding key walls to make sure the river is kept out of the city. Um, you've also got issues as well, kind of upstream with the dams, Carragadroha Dam, Inascara Dam. They only keep back 50% of any flood. Like, that's what they were built for. There's an argument, oh, let's take down the dams. You take down the dams and you'll see what comes down. Um, the river is kind of quite enormous. Um, so, but look, I'm not, I'm not an engineer. 
like I'm, I'm a local historian, I'm a community activist. I'm, and as I've said, I, I'm, I'm trying to give people a voice. Um, but what I've learned in here is that just because you have a voice, that doesn't mean you can get it. It's like asking for world peace here. You might get, you might just get the world part. You might get the peace, even though you're going, but the peace is the most important part. Um, so I'm, no, I'm conscious of that. I mean, I, I have a huge interest in planning the future of the city here. I mean, I'm not just stuck in the past. I like to think I'm stuck completely in the past, even though I, I write about Cork every day and I, I'm big into photography. I love photographing the city. Um, and I write about it a lot. I spend hours and hours and hours and hours at home every day, um, just thinking about this place. Um, so I've got a passion for it. So, I would be, if something really rattled me, I would be the first out in the street kind of going, no, uh, you can't do that if I didn't. But I do, I mean, I think I've said the point as well, the city is an evolving place. If you if you look at the higgly-pinglist of the architecture, like this, like the people in the 1700s tore down the medieval town and actually built something that they needed. They built elements that they needed, they needed for their time. They needed a butter market. They needed to build quaysides along the river. Um, they needed to put in bridges. They had to put in their infrastructure. The people in the 1800s tore down much of the 1700s city. They built what they needed. They didn't tear down everything. Um, the people in the 20th century did the t- same thing. In our 21st century, we've got new buildings and docklands. Now, I'm actually not a major fan of the glass box architecture. that has been this, what I call IKEA. Everything looks the same glass architecture, which is another argument. But every generation in Cork has kind of put their own legacy and their own kind of stamp so it's it's difficult to save all of Cork. I, I think every generation has their own uh, elements of concern, uh, and that also goes back to that. I suppose that when I said to you, standing on the national monument and looking around, you have nationalism history. You've got Huguenot Quaker history. You've got British Empire history. You've got stories about how to deal with poverty. Um, and actually, crossed away from that bridge, you've got the story of the Fire Brigade and Sullivan's Key as well in Cork. And all these stories whizzing around. Um, so we need to hear all of the voices. Um, I did vote against the Morrison's Island uh, project uh, because I just thought I just thought it was just fair in terms of architectural design. It wasn't anything stunning. I just thought it lacked a story. Like you walk down Morrison's Island, it's got the story of the key itself, Father Matthew Church. It's got there's a number of things as well, kind of going down, going on there. Even George's Key is where the old Viking Age settlement as well. There was a settlement there, like Cove Street, the name Cove Street because it was a cove for ships. And when they start building the hotel for on the site of the old tax office. They might actually come down on top of old Viking Age ships from a thousand years ago, for all we know. Uh, I don't know what's beneath the ground. It's layered beneath the ground as well. So I've, I've an open mind, but I've also have in my head that things have also changed in Cork. And uh, I, I try to keep an open mind on that. Not everyone's going to... I, I think somewhere along the line there's going to be a compromise. Um, I don't see it as the wall scheme. Um, I think people have in their head that the walls are going to be like two and a half metres high all the way around, you can't see the river. It's not that at all. Uh, perhaps the main concern for me is that they break up the limestone key wall, build a concrete wall at a metre level height, reclad it with limestone. So you don't have the original limestone mm-hmm. wall. That for me is jarring me in terms of oh, this gorgeous wall. But if we don't do that, then the city could end up being flooded. Um, 
And then there's a balance in terms of the city's built in a swamp and there's arguments that the water will kind of get beneath behind these walls that are constructed anyway. There'll be an explosion of pressure and, and elements like that. Um, so, no, I've, I've been following that debate kind of very, very closely. Um, there have, there's, been, there's a lot of historical references to the city being flooded out through the ages. We're lucky with the two dams we have, um, but we mightn't be as lucky in 50 years' time with, with, with some sort of tidal surge. But we need to manage the riverine element and we need a tidal barrier, but I'm for the one billion euros one. Um, and with that comes responsibility. You put in a tidal barrier in the harbour, you probably would have to wipe out natural, natural heritage areas. I think we've got 100,000 wader birds that come into Cork Harbour every year. Now, I suppose there's an argument on should we preserve the birds or not? Um, I'm not a natural heritage expert. Um, you probably have to talk to a natural heritage expert on that and why these birds are important and why all these ecosystems in the harbour are important, um, why the towns and villages in the harbour should be protected. Um, so the city is a lot, of, I mean, the city is going to expand double in size next year. It's an exciting time. But there's, there are so mm. many challenges. There are so many challenges. I, and I could tell you, uh, we, I suppose we've, we've, we've just touched base on a, a few centuries, and each one of those centuries has presented its own problems. I was just going to say, like, as I was saying earlier, this is the first in a few of yeah. Kev's um, podcasts about Cork, but yeah. I think that it's raised a lot of questions and piqued a lot of curiosity in myself, which I yeah. think was the point of the, the first one to get it off to the start, but we might have to get back together sometime and like zone in on a certain area. Oh yeah, and the, <laughs> like, I suppose I, I'm lucky I've got the, I like to think a local history context, but also like I'm a councillor here for nine years, an independent councillor. And so I'm also, I suppose, I'm not against the party political line, but I, I try to move the party political line to do, to do more for the city and to be conscious that it is an evolving city and uh, to look more at the planning element kind of looking forward. I think we do have good directors of services here. Um, I, there's a nar- narrative out there around the, um, the Riverlea uh, scheme that people don't care. People do care. They do care. Um, but they're just trying to find a happy balance. And the thing is, is that to get a happy balance, not everyone's going to be happy. That's, mm. the, that's the problem in a, in a democratic world. Um, and, and probably the, that's the great thing about being in a democratic world as well. It's like people can get all their voices heard. And, that's, and again, as I said, in all of my work, it's trying to give people a voice. Whether you're nine years old doing a local history project, belonging to me or you're on a walking tour and you're 75 or you're doing an oral history project with me and you're 100 like people's voices are kind of are important um yeah how can people go on a walking tour or keep up with what you're doing um i've got a facebook page cork or city or town um so just click like on that um or my heritage page is corkheritage.ie or just pick up the cork independent um every thursday and you'll see usually on page 16, 17, 18, um, you'll see Cork or City or Town and I always list kind of stuff that's kind of going on. I mean, I'm uh, doing a series at the moment on the River Lee on Facebook, a daily series, so just putting back up some of the articles I did 10 years ago so you can kind of 
It's called Riverly Valley Stories. Um, so probably doing. I usually run walking tours from spring to autumn. It's more difficult to run a walking tour in winter time. We just with the rain and so on, and especially suburban walking tours because our suburbs are really open. We're in town. At least you can go and dodge into the English market or dodge into a church. And while you're in the church, you tell the story of the church, and then the rain might pass outside or in around the lock. When it rains, you're stuck there underneath the trees. Uh, but the lock, but it's it is all, but not the lock is an incredible kind of place. I did one recently on the marina. Um, a lot of discussion there and trying to close off the marina at the weekends and just let it be a promenade. It's amazing. The marina began its life as a promenade uh, and then kind of got lost along the way with traffic in it. Um, but there are competing demands where people want to go on a Sunday drive down the marina. Uh, so to uh, there has to be some sort of happy balance and happy, happy compromise. And I think that's the way, I think that's what has happened to the city. It has emerged into this kind of happy compromise. Um, I used to be someone who, well, maybe 25 years ago, started off like condemning the city, kind of going, oh, look at this, and look at that dirt, and look at that challenge, and this is horrific. Um, and yeah, there are elements of that in the city. But I've, I've gone along the way of kind of seeing the bottle as half full, not a half empty, and that we it's an evolving city. We're never going to finish off its story completely. Um, it's going to keep changing. In 50 years' time, it's going to be a very different city to what we see, actually see now. You'll see the changes in Docklands at the moment with the Port of Cork leaving the next couple of years. We'll have the, all these kind of empty Docklands kind of spaces, uh, very rich for development. Like, for me, it's important that we have an, an element of cultural development. There's an old uh, derelict red bricked building called Odlum's building. I'd love to see some sort of cultural centre there. No, that's very broad, I know, but that could be a theatre. That could be actually spaces for artists. There's a huge demand. Artists want more units, workspaces. Um, we need to do something along those lines. But also with the council, I mean, when you're in the council, it always comes down to finance. Uh, you propose an idea, they're like, well, show me where the money is. I'm like, uh, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll come back to you with the next idea. Um, but as, yeah, you try to work with the executive here as much as possible. And also, like, for me, working with either constituents or school kids or community people, um, all of my stuff kind of work together. They don't, I, I like I like to think they work kind of in isolation. Um like for me, if you're a young person, you can do the history project. But then if you want to enter the talent competition, you can as well. If you want to enter the art competition, you can. Um, you, uh, it's ent- I went to make a model boat project. Uh, you can. It's entirely up to yourself. And with the older people, they can come on the tour or they can read the column mm-hmm. or they can, they can get involved in doing an oral history project. Or I'm very, very open to projects. So um, I'd like to think I work hard and for the city in particular and just try to move things on. Um, I've, I've enjoyed everything so far. And, I, and when I say all of that, I mean, I, I have a political post in Brussels and I think called the European Committee of the Regions where I represent Ireland and Cork's interest in Europe on what should be done with European funding and European ideas and mechanisms and toolkits. And so every four to five weeks I'm sent to a, another city or country and I'm in one sense parachuted in to solve their problem and the thing is that every city and every member state every city in Europe has the same issues and same problems like and people ask me the same question are we on the right track and I'm like you're on the right track the challenges you describe are the same in my city in terms of environmental challenges or societal problems that could be poverty um, all the way through to someone actually has a business idea what am I supposed to do with this idea? And 
um, how do I become an entrepreneur to this or someone who's sleeping on the street, a homeless issue. Um, in two weeks' time, I'm representing this committee of the regions on the issue of affordable housing. And certainly I'll be raising, giving an example of my city where we did have an affordable housing project and then unfortunately government shelved it because of financial downturn. Um, but it worked. And it's like it gave people hope, it gave people a chance, it gave people a step in the ladder. And I'd like to think a lot of my work is just giving people a step up in the ladder. Um, but it's this, but the, what I, my stuff, my work is what I call positive things. I, I, uh, I, I'm not a protester. There's nothing wrong with protests, but I'm kind of like, let's do something. Let's mm. let's let's see how far we can push this as much as possible, especially the next generation. Like, uh, like as a local councillor, I constantly ask, why, what are you doing for my kids?" And like, I, like fifty over fifty percent of my ward are kids. Um, so you've got five percent. Five, like I don't know, fifty percent kids. 25% parents and then 25% of older people who are always asking me, what are you doing for the kids? So when I go, when I, when I'm, when I go canvassing and I've got a local election next year, I've no doubt that some of the big issues will be housing, but also like, where are the opportunities coming? What's actually happening to this world? So you can learn stuff from Cork's past and what they've dabbled in, in the past and what worked. Um, and also take stories from Cork's past and go, we can use that story to promote the city now kind of going forward or take that legacy and kind of push it. So, for example, Branding Cork. We had a huge international exhibition in Cork, a World Fair, in 1902, 1903. They spent a year setting it up, and it ran for six months in 1902, 1903. People came from all over the world. It was one of the most simple concepts. But if we tried to do it today, we probably wouldn't be able to do it. From planning perspective, plus just getting people together and the finance. But they just pushed it. They pushed the button, and it worked. And I... Those are the things I love learning about. Or the Vikings who decided to live on an island, a swamp, marshy island a thousand years ago, with river coming through their front door and the tide coming in twice a day. And they were like, we're going to live here, we're going to make it work. And they made it work. And sure enough, we find this. We find this things, these, these elements 900 years later when we dig down. Um, and so that story is important. That these people, like, they were dealing with water every single day um, and they made it work. Um, and why they lived on an island, we'll never know. Or the legacy of St. Finbar and this walk down the Riverly Valley. And when you go down the Riverly Valley, you'll see all the stained glass windows and holy wells and people speaking about this myth and legend. Um, and I always think that myths and legends are as strong as facts. Because that's what I actually saw on the ground. Um, like nearly hearsay is nearly as strong as fact. Um, and, but also hearsay is quite dangerous as well. Um, but it's also like people, so people's perspective and how they... Yeah, how they translate things into their own words in their own head, I suppose. Cool. Thanks very much for your time. Yeah, no problem. Thanks very much. <laughs> sharing the stories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we can do another one sometime. Yeah, soon. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Right. We, we, yeah, we didn't yeah. even get to, here's the story of the city. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I think, I think that a lot of people are going to listen to this and say, oh, actually, I live right beside that place. Even when I hear you talking about, um, say, the Oldlums building, which I can see from where I'm living at the minute, yeah, I'm thinking, yeah. well, that's really interesting and learn more about it. And so I think that it'll pique people's curiosity to go and find out a bit, a bit more about where, where they are in Cork or where they work or where yeah, they walk. Definitely, definitely. So, thanks very much. Yeah, no problem. That's episode 25 of the Rebel Matters podcast in the bag, lads. So, Gurak Head Milamaig at the Kieran, a CC's Ogazan Korashin, a Hafidlum. We're one quarter of the way to the century for the Rebel Matters podcast. So, it's a bit of a landmark. 
I just want to take this opportunity to thank all you guys who have been listening, sharing the podcast around, giving us five star ratings and reviews, and especially anyone who's been giving me feedback and having a bit of a chat with me after the episodes. It's really good to have that conversation after episodes go out there and it gives me a really good boost of motivation to keep going with it. So keep that, keep all that there going. Um, as you know, Ackley is my day job and also night job and every hour of the day job. So we are a personal training company based in Cork City Centre. If you're interested in doing some personal training, finding out a bit more about us, or if you want to read up on some of our blogs, go to Ackley.ie, A-C-L-A-I.ie and check that out and come in to get a consultation with us if you want to do the personal training hook up with us for some of the events that we have ongoing as I was saying earlier the next one is on the 16th of December it's the one day only pop-up shop for Palestine to help us get that project up and running in the West Bank and I think that's it so Gorakhead Milamoyagov Asavegeshtacht Begi Jathanachela Augustkiji and Heather Ella can you fear it? Thank you